Welcome to the podcast version of Police Science Doctor, the online resource bridging the gap between research and investigative practice. For police personnel who go the extra mile. For academics who want to connect better with investigative practitioners. On YouTube and on policesciencedoctor.com. Hello everyone, this is Suzanne Knabernickel from Police Science Doctor with my weekly broadcast about police science snippets. These snippets are basically three extracts of, I think, something compressed, something that's useful and something that's compact and hopefully usable to someone working in military, intelligence, frontline policing, law enforcement in all these areas or people who are studying or lecturing and teaching in those areas. So there's lots of research published all the time, and I go through articles and see what I think is actually going to be applicable and actionable, because a lot of research is very specific, very niche, or very abstract, and can't actually be used by frontline practitioners very much. The ones that can be used, I present to you on a weekly basis, and they're also emailed out to every everyone who's on the police science doctor email list, which you can join for free. You will get these police science snippets into your inbox every Tuesday three of them with your links to the original research. So if you're not already on the police science doctor list, just Google police science, go to police science doctor and enter your details into the registration form that's on there. So I'm going to be presenting this week, this week's three police science snippets. There's one, the first one is a little bit different because I couldn't actually give you access to the original article. It's, um, it's behind a paywall subscription wall that I can't get to. So what I did, because it's a relatively short article, I, I, I will actually read the whole, the whole article to you. So the first snippet, let me just start with that, is about preventing police suicide. Very important topic, which is why I'm going to be reading the whole thing to you as well. This brief article explains very clearly why police need regular mental health check-ins and why they don't do them. Most members of the public are not aware that more officers take their own lives than are killed in the line of duty. Okay, so this topic is so important that last year I actually did a mental health and policing conference webinar. It's online and it's free. Go to policesciencedoctor.com and just click on events. And I also had three consecutive workshops on mental health issues in policing. So as I said, um, this article was actually written by a good friend of mine, Dr. Marla Friedman. She's a, um, she's a practicing psychologist in in Illinois, in America, and she wrote this article, and it's just about three pages, so I'm going to read this out because it's so important, I think, and because I wasn't able to give you access to this. And um, so the article is called Let Them Heal by Marla Friedman. The mental health check-in, MHCI, for law enforcement has been recommended by mental health professionals for decades. However, the pushback from the police community has been strong and consistent. I will provide the full protocol so you can understand what the mental health check-in entails, who should conduct them, and why officers reject them. So there's something that's very important for officers, and officers reject it. Okay? Police psychologists have been pressing for mental health check-ins to become mandatory because of their multiple benefits for the officer, their family, the department, and the community. The number one reason for the rejection of the annual check-in is stigma. To fully understand this, you need to understand the culture itself. Law enforcement personnel as, as a group are known to be generally conservative and traditional in their views, personally and politically. That is not true for all officers. However, law and order is the platform they stand on. Once they are entrusted with solo patrol, officers become part of the private club in blue. Allegiance to the men and women they work with becomes a necessity because their lives depend on each other. More so now with officers under tight scrutiny as well as emotional, psychological and physical attack by those they have sworn to protect. 
As a result of this high pressure job, they can become they become they can become cynical cynical and insular. Police officers can often be described as strong, protective, suspicious, and private, and many enter the profession with the belief that they can withstand anything. They can't. They have the same needs, they have the same human needs as the rest of us. But the lifestyle is brutal. Many have sleep shift disorders from working long hours and then being forced back on for another shift. Some officers report being so exhausted that they stand at the back of the room during training so they can stay awake. In addition, police officers often have poor diets. Also, they experience a frequent release of stress hormones pouring into their systems. The job stress is also associated with elevated anxiety, depression, marital problems that result in divorce, financial stress, and the list goes on. You've heard the term, the thin blue line, which represents the division between law and order and anarchy. That is what a police officer is tasked with daily, and it is becoming more difficult every year. The divisiveness in the country regarding law enforcement, this is actually USA that Dr. Friedman is writing about, um, adds to all the other stresses at work and at home which with, with which they are often confronted with. Mental health issues occur in this population at an increasingly high rate. The culture dictates that going for help is a sign of weakness or the person is crazy. If the officer finds out one of their own is in treatment for depression, anxiety, substance abuse, PTSD or any other disorder, they start to worry. Can he or she be trusted under pressure to perform? Will they be able to back me up if they need, if needed on a call? How did they get this way? This couldn't happen to me, could it? Can't they just suck it up? What if someone finds out they went for help? Whom are they talking to and how do they know that the therapist won't tell people what is discussed in the session? Are they saying anything about me? The anxiety about anything personal revealed or that their thoughts or fears are exposed is not a risk they want to take. There has been some shifts in attitudes among younger officers and that is a hopeful sign. Concerns about taking medication remain, but they can take medication and still work through some, though some medications they are not able to take because they could affect reaction time or cause drowsiness, which would be a safety concern. They are not encouraged to be self-reflective or deal with their own thoughts or feelings unless they are related to the job. They often have limited coping skills when overwhelmed with stress, sadness, grief, horror, fear, terror, or anger. Anger and frustration are the feelings that are understood and accepted as long as they aren't acted upon. This might be because policing was only open to males for a long time. Given a choice between anger and tears, anger is certainly more accepted than crying. Are you wondering why they struggle with feelings, frightening intrusive thoughts, nightmares, insomnia, panic, disgust, and the urge to yell and put their fist through a wall? Some explanatory issues. Police officers are exposed to death on a frequent basis, other than the occasional investigations of died peacefully in his sleep. The injuries and deaths they encounter may be mutilated, bloody, shot, stabbed, raped, tortured, burned, hung or dismembered, and too often the victim is a child. Sometimes they are children of the same age and sex as the, offend as the officer's child. For many officers, seeing an injured or dead child is a presenting problem in the psychologist's office, though the officer doesn't know that yet. The sights, sounds and smells they encounter are tattooed in them and can be triggers for trauma for a very long list of haunting symptoms. In addition, there are other issues which cause stress, sometimes for a prolonged period of time. Interpersonal struggles, addiction, in-house organizational pressure, financial problems and other things add to the frequent strain experienced by officers. What do we know? What we do know is that officer candidates enter the profession mentally healthy. They are tested extensively and then begin their careers. Five years later, many are not the same person. In the US, there is no mandatory reporting for police officer suicide. Every government agency that has a reporting system insists on voluntary reporting only. 
We know suicides have been underreported because all the officers in the department know about them. Most command staff are devastated by a suicide in their department. We also struggle to understand why in many cases. However, most citizens are unaware that more officers take their own lives than are killed in the line of duty. Policing is lethal. To identify and understand the variables associated with suicide, Dr. Olivia Johnson, president of Blue Wall Institute, collected 50 data points for a great many police suicides. Analyzing records from coroners, medical examiners, family members and autopsy reports yielded previously untapped data. Dr. Johnson was able to add to our knowledge about suicide through the psychological autopsy. Fresh research results and new clinical practices are offered in practical, in practical considerations for preventing police suicide. Um, I think this is a book. And concluding with a fatal 10, a graphic presentation of the salient variables, we now have solid data to assist us in training, practical therapeutic methods and curriculum development. Early identification and intervention can help officers examine, confront and understand thoughts, feelings and behaviours that have plagued them. Developing a confidential relationship with a culturally and trauma-informed clinician can provide safety, encourage insight, allow for collaboration on solutions and build resilience. But the first step in this process is the mental health check-in. Now note there that this is someone who's um, familiar with law enforcement and policing. Batch of Life's standardised mental health check-in. The goals and guidelines for the mandatory mental health check-in include, one, develop a relationship with a licensed mental health professional who is culturally competent in law enforcement culture. If the police officer develops an issue in the future, as, as we all do, they will already have a solid relationship established and can easily contact their clinician to address and resolve the problem. Two, confidentiality. No report goes to the officer's department. The only time confidentiality is broken is if the officer plans to hurt others or themselves. Three, the mental health check-in is not a fitness for duty evaluation. There is no assessment of the officer's functioning on the job. The officer can choose to talk about anything they feel is beneficial to them and their families. And four, it is always preferable to, con to conduct the check-in outside of the officer's department. Officers report greater comfort and security when there is no correct connection to the department. Some believe that the employee assistance program is a conduit to management, so they have some a level of mistrust there. The following statement is a standardized example of a letter that could be given to an officer. So, you know, back to the supervisor that somebody has had the check-in. John Smith has successfully satisfied the requirements for the mental health check-in. No other information is passed to the department. Okay, so Dr. Marla Friedman, Friedman from Illinois wrote this. And as I said, it's very unusual for me to read out a whole article here. It was a short article. But I think this... Um, this is so important that I wanted you guys to have this. So this is actually in the in the um, in the snippet itself. If you get it emailed or if you download it from the website, you actually have this whole article in there because it's from the uh, the Michigan psychologist, and I, I don't have access to that, and most of you don't either. So the second snippet for this week: um, the presence of weapons and facial recognition. Witnessing an offence in which the offender has a weapon can impact the person's ability to recognise or describe the offender as their focus was on the weapon. However, it was found that this is the case only for short exposure to the scene. When the offender's face and weapon are seen for at least 30 seconds, the witness is able to encode information about the face as well. This is quite interesting because I didn't know about this time difference. So obviously when somebody is bandaging a knife or holding a gun to your face, necessarily your focus will be on the weapon. And we have found that witnesses and victims are struggling to describe the offender 
if that if their attention was basically diverted to something very very pressing such as a weapon but it says this research here has found that actually if you're if the person is exposed to this incident for 30 seconds or more half a minute they may be able to describe the offender so this is good for people doing witness interviews and the last snippet for today is about the implementation of problem oriented policing when done well problem problem oriented policing or pop is associated with meaningful reductions in crime and public safety concerns. POP is a framework for improving police effectiveness through paying greater attention to resolving the substantive community problems that fall within the police remit, rather than responding to calls for service as they arrive. And yet, history shows that the implementation and delivery of problem-oriented policing has proven challenging, in part because it represents a major change to the dominant approach to police work, and police are not very fast to change. POP has been viewed as complex to deliver because it needs new structures to support its operations and requires knowledge and skills that officers do not routinely have. Okay, so we have a great solution here that's available. There are problems with implementation because it's so different from what's been done before, but we need something that's very different to what we've done before. Okay, so these were the snippets for today. Um, Dave, thank you very much for your comment, Dave. And um, I will see you guys again soon next week, in fact, with the next snippets. And I hope that what I've told you about today is useful to you. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. I hope you found this content useful. You can get access to each episode's transcript with key learning points, timestamps and references if you get yourself onto my mailing list. Just go to the main website on policesciencedoctor.com and on the bottom of each page you will find a sign-up form for notifications of new content. Just enter your first name, your preferred email address and the type of organization you work for. You will not get any spam. This is just for me to let you know about new content and for you to get access to all the transcripts. Mm -hmm.